Good morning. It's a beautiful morning. I love cold and sunny, crisp winter days like this. It's kind of nice to have winter back, have the snow back, just in time to have Mike and Laura back. It's great to have you guys back. So today we're going to be continuing our, our journey through the story of, of 1st and 2nd Samuel and specifically the, the life of David. So, so far, the, the first week we looked at David, we looked at how God chose David, just this humble shepherd boy, to be anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. And that would then disrupt the, the bloodline of Saul. Saul, the, the first king of Israel. He's still in power. He's still the king. But he's disobeyed God. So this is, that led then to this chain of events, bringing David forward as Saul begins to uh, decline. And the fact that God chose David over the, all of his seven other brothers was a lesson that while humans see and, and judge uh, based on appearance, based on outward su- superficial factors, uh, God looks much deeper. He uh, looks at our hearts, our motives, and our, our thoughts and intentions, and that's what he, he judges on. And then last week we looked at the really exciting and thrilling story of David and Goliath in chapter 17, and that was just a, a vivid picture of how God opposes the proud and exalts the, the humble. And so then we, we looked at that concept, a little bit of, of pride versus humility, and uh, the importance of humility and the proper application of, of confidence and pride being in God rather than in ourselves. But because of that, we can't have the boldness and the courage to represent God in the ways in which he called us, just like David did. So we are going to pick up in chapter 18 today of 1 Samuel. So you can go ahead and find your place there if you'd like. We're going to start there and then kind of skip skip along a little bit to cover quite a bit of ground. So last, last week I mentioned that it marked a pretty significant moment um, in bringing about this shift, this, this transition to David's exaltation and Saul's ultimate demise. And so this week we're going to look uh, at a, a few key factors and how that, that plays out. So remember when, when Saul first meets David, he has absolutely no idea that he'd be a threat to the throne. But in the wake of David defeating Goliath and that amazing victory, Saul then suddenly began to see him in a, in a whole new light. In fact, we, we found Saul suddenly asking, wait a minute, who's this kid's dad and, and where is he from again? He realized that, oh, he'd promised uh, his daughter in, in marriage, one of his daughters in marriage, to um, whoever killed Goliath, plus tax exemption for his whole family for life. So that's kind of where we left off last week. And meanwhile, we're going to see Saul's own son, Jonathan, end up declaring loyalty to David. And it's a pretty unexpected move. And that's how chapter 18 begins. It's a really crucial moment. So we're going to go ahead and read through that together. 1 Samuel 18, starting right in verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul... He met Jonathan, the king's son. 
There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. So that's a, a really serious friendship. This goes beyond just kind of a, a strategic or political alliance or even just kind of getting along with each other on a superficial level. They, they literally formed a covenant of brotherhood together. This is, this is loyalty and commitment to each other on really the, the deepest level possible. And I think it's, it's mentioned here right away um, as, as a precedent to what we'll see uh, the role of their friendship playing into the story later on. So meanwhile, David is then kept pretty busy, starting in verse 5, we read that whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So, first of all, his success as a military commander has really made him quite famous. Everyone knows about him. He's leading the Israelite army in victories over the Philistines. He's just skyrocketing in popularity among the people. He's a household name now, even to the point where his name is being sung in celebration right alongside uh, the name of, of Saul himself, King Saul. And then we get these two lines of this, this song, this couplet, in which Saul is given credit for thousands, and then David tens of thousands. And it's not entirely clear as to the intention of that, whether or not those words were really meant to be kind of throwing shade on Saul and, and putting David above him. Uh, it could have been just as easily an, an innocent affirmation of Saul's decision to appoint David as commander. But regardless of the intention, Saul definitely took it as a, a, a disrespect and just an undermining of his own achievements, which we see in verse 8. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. Yep. <laughs> so from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So this is the, the first time that we really see Saul explicitly realizing, wait, this David could really be a threat to the throne. And we see him then just fully give in to that dark side of, of jealousy and resentment instead of that fondness that we had seen and admiration and gratitude towards David. And however long he might have been able to hide that jealousy and resentment towards David, it definitely came to light eventually, as, as we see in the next few verses. In verse 10 it says, The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. <laughs> now, if that, if that phrase jumps out at you again, um, tormenting spirit or evil spirit in some translations. This came up first in chapter 16, and I talked about that in, in the first 
sermon of this series. So if you are interested in that, but for some reason didn't get a chance to catch that sermon, um, it, but if you want to hear my take on that, you can go and look that up online and listen to that, that first one. But I'm not going to rehash that whole thing again here. So anyway, he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. Finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men, and David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. So Saul himself tried to kill David twice, but was unsuccessful. David got away, and then he just kind of sent him away to fight the Philistines. So then we just kind of see Saul descending into madness, into fear and self-destruction, while witnessing David just kind of succeeding at everything he does. And an important point here, why, why did David succeed at everything he did? Verse 14, he succeeded in everything he did because Yahweh was with him. So meanwhile, as Saul was just simmering in hatred David, uh, for David, uh, the rest of Israel just grew and grew in their love for him, and he grew in popularity with everyone except for pretty much Saul. So eventually, Saul decides to come up with a scheme to try to get rid of David. So we read in verse 17, One day Saul said to David, I'm ready to give you my older daughter Mirab as your wife. But first, you must prove yourself to be a real warrior by fighting the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, I'll send him out against the Philistines and let them kill him rather than doing it myself. Well, I'm just going to kind of summarize what happens next. The plan didn't really work out initially just because of David's humility. He essentially answered by saying, no, I, I'm just a nobody. I really don't deserve to be the son-in-law to the king. So, you know, thanks, but, but no thanks. So that daughter ended up marrying someone else. But in the meantime, another daughter, Michal, was actually falling in love with David. So Saul thought, okay, this, this is perfect, perfect opportunity. I'll set this up and use her as a trap to get David. He's going to try again. So he got some of his guys then to try to convince David, essentially going to him and saying, you know what, we like you, the king likes you, you really should just take him up on this offer. But once again, David said, no, I'm humble, I'm poor, and you know, I, I couldn't even begin to think of affording the bride price anyway, which was customary for uh, the time for the, the groom to pay a bride price. So Saul comes back with this after getting that message from David. So skipping then down to verse 25, I'll, I'll read Saul's reply. Tell David that all I want for the bride price is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Vengeance on my enemies is all I really want. But what Saul had in mind was that David would be killed in the fight. <laughs> David thought that was perfect. <laughs> David was delighted to accept the offer. He goes, okay, well, in that, in that case, I can do that. 
So before the time limit expired, he and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. What did Saul ask for? 100 Philistines. So they killed 200 Philistines. And David fulfilled the king's requirement by presenting all their foreskins to him. So Saul gave his daughter Michal to David to be his wife. So first off, I, got, I just got to say that this week's topic was not quite as conducive to having some fun slides and visuals on the screen. <laughs> so you're welcome for that. Decided not to go there. But I have to imagine that shock factor would have been there for Saul even, because he wasn't ever expecting David to come through on this challenge and come back from that. And not only did David fulfill the requirement by defeating 100 Philistines, he doubled it, because why not? So at that point, really Saul had no choice. He had to uh, really uh, come through on, on his end of the bargain. Not that he liked it, though, as we see in verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, which I think is kind of funny, because as if it wasn't already obvious through everything that's already happened, but when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michal loved him, the one who was supposed to be a trap actually was in love with him, Saul became even more afraid of him, and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. And every time the commanders of the Philistines attacked, David was more successful against them than all the rest of Saul's officers. So David's name became very famous. So those last few verses there of, of chapter 18 really set the stage, I think, and in some ways even summarize what the rest of the book is going to, to have over the next 13 chapters to the end of 1 Samuel. So in chapters 19 through 31, uh, they go on to really describe some of the, the unfolding of, of drama and intrigue, and it's, pretty, it's of pretty epic proportions, this, this story. So I think we should just go ahead and read through all 13 chapters together right now. You ready? Obviously, I'm kidding. We don't have time to go through all of that in, in detail. But if you haven't read through these chapters recently, uh, then you know maybe this week could be an opportunity to, to do that. So I am going to summarize just a few of the, the key things that happen throughout these chapters. But there's a lot in there. And it's a really intricately, brilliantly told story. So I definitely encourage you to kind of go back and fill in some of those details on your, your own time. So, first of all, in the next couple chapters, we see a shift in, in loyalty. And Saul continues to keep going after David, trying to kill him. And meanwhile, his daughter, Michal, married to David, who he intended as a trap for David, deceives Saul, essentially betraying her own father, in order to save David's life and help him escape from Saul. And then we see Saul's own son, Jonathan, again, pledge his loyalty to David. He stays loyal. He encourages him. He stands up for David to his father. He tries to convince Saul at one point to kind of return to reason and say, hey, really, this, he's, he has nothing against you. Why do you keep trying to kill him? And ultimately, then, Jonathan collaborated with David to confirm that Saul really was kind of past the point of no return. There was no way David could come back uh, and be near Saul and still be safe. So then he helped him escape for good. 
And then coming to, by the time we get to chapter 21 is where we see David really on the run. He's on the lamb, in hiding, and in kind of a, a survival mode. We see him doing some, some interesting things strategically. Again, there's a lot that happens in those, those last 10 chapters, 21 through 31. But I think one of the most important takeaways from it all is how we see in these sections how David's true character, his true motives and intentions are once again revealed and shown as a contrast to Saul's. So while Saul just continues to be on this jealousy and hatred-fueled manhunt for David, David then has multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but instead he spared him. And not only did he not kill him, he throughout it maintained a spirit of, of humility, respect, and even loyalty to Saul. He still recognized him through the whole thing as his king. So he, he remained steadfast in a conviction that it wasn't his place to seek retaliation or revenge or judgment on Saul for his sin, but rather to trust God to take care of that. So I'm going to read an excerpt from chapter 24. And here David is proclaiming this conviction right to Saul's face after uh, sparing him for the, first, uh, for the first time. So chapter 24, beginning in verse 11, if you'd like to read along. This is Saul, uh, David speaking to Saul, actually, from a safe distance. He said, Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you, and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As that old proverb says, from evil, from evil people come evil deeds. So you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. So notice David's tone here is not one of gloating or taunting. It's of deference and, and humility but confidence. And, but he refers even to Saul as his father, maybe playing into the fact that he was in fact his son-in-law. He became his son-in-law when he married Michal. But just as he did boldly with Goliath, he's boldly and, and decisively doing what he knew was the right thing, even though everyone around him, uh, despite what everyone around him was saying, uh, because if you read through the, the, more, the context of this passage, the guys that he was with really wanted him to kill Saul. They thought, that was, they thought, oh look, God is allowing you to kill him. And he said, no, he didn't want to do that. He had faith in God's ability and, and willingness to oversee the outcome of the situation. And in this case, it actually led to what seems like some repentance on, on Saul's behalf. If you read the next few verses, uh, although it ended up 
being pretty short-lived repentance, if it was repentance. Uh, and we see a very similar scenario happen then later. And in this case, uh, when David could have killed him but didn't, he actually scolds Abner, the, the king's commander, for not keeping Saul safe. He's basically saying, Abner, dude, you're not doing your job. I could have killed Saul last night. And here's, here's the proof. I have his spear and the water bucket that was next to his head. So David is basically telling his enemy's bodyguard to do a better job of, of keeping him safe, which is just, it's, it's so backwards. But it, again, shows David's trust in God. And I should also mention we do see uh, the, the death of Samuel in, this, in these chapters, in chapter 25. And that was significant. Uh, there's not a whole lot of text dedicated to his death, but it, it does mark sort of an, an end of an era, in a sense. God would still raise up more prophets subsequently, uh, but Israel was now fully thrust into this era of king. So then, when we get to the last few chapters, Saul just gets weirder and more desperate. He resorts to sorcery at one point, which is something that he had totally outlawed at the beginning of his kingship. And he's, he's just a mess. And meanwhile, David is just busy being awesome and victorious in battle. And there's this whole section of Samuel here at the end is, uh, First Samuel is really interesting and, and weird and compelling storytelling. David actually joins up with the Philistines at one point, believe it or not. So again, I, I'd encourage you to read through all, how that all plays out. It's, it's really fascinating, but most importantly, through all of that, David manages to do the right thing again and again. Now, we, we do know that David is human. He's not perfect, and eventually we'll get to you know, see his, his flaws and his eventual downfall later on. But for now, he's, he's riding that, that wave, that, that upward arc to his, his greatness. And at this point in his life, he's a paragon of faith. While Saul is just kind of on that opposite end of the spectrum. He's down here while David's up here. And First Samuel eventually ends with Saul dying. A pretty gruesome death in, in battle. And it's shortly after that in, in 2 Samuel uh, that we'll see David finally becoming king. Uh, and just as a side note, the, the division between 1 and 2 Samuel is kind of artificial. It's really meant as one, it's one long uh, work. It's just divided in half basically because back in the day they couldn't fit the whole thing on one scroll. So they had two scrolls. Um, and now it's just a kind of an artificial division. So anyway, in 2 Samuel we see David become king, but before that, in, in the immediate aftermath of Saul's death, David's response was not to, to celebrate or rejoice in the final downfall of this guy who's been hunting him down and trying to kill him for so long. And it wasn't even to just kind of relax and breathe a sigh of relief. His response and, and the response of his men, as soon as they heard of Saul's death, was deep sorrow and mourning, weeping and fasting. And David even killed the guy who killed Saul. And at the end of Saul's life, looking back at his 
story, the majority of his character, he, has, he had some moments, good moments, but the majority of his character serves as a warning to, to basically uh, introspectively um, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Uh, while, while David, on the other hand, at this point, his character is, is an example of, of trust and, and patience and hope. So it, these two characters, at least in this particular section of their lives, when they're juxtapos- juxtaposed like this, uh, they're, they're presented to us as a lesson, basically, to emulate the one and, and not the other. So we're not going to get further into the, the storyline for today. So I want to I take a minute just to reflect again, just some more on, on David's attitude towards Saul throughout all of this. And I've, I've read through this book quite a few times, um, and just like with any scripture, when you read it over and over again, it seems like every time you read it, there's something different or new that stands out, or you just understand it in a different way. And this time reading it through, this just stood out to me as being a really profound lesson to take away from these last you know, 13, 14 chapters of, of 1 Samuel. So this, this idea of David's attitude uh, towards his enemy being not one of, of resentment uh, is kind of like what we saw with, with pride and humility last week. It's not an isolated principle just found in this one story. It's just an illustration, a really good illustration, of a principle that's taught throughout, throughout Scripture. So we see this in the wisdom of, of Proverbs, uh, chapter 24, 17 and 18. says, Don't gloat when your enemy falls, and don't let your heart rejoice when he stumbles, or the Lord will see, be displeased, and turn his wrath away from him. And again, in, in Proverbs 25, 21, If your enemy is hungry... Give him food to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And you even find it in Leviticus as, as part of Israel's core foundational teachings in chapter 19, verse 18. It says, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. And David understood that revenge was, was not his to take, but, but God's. And in Deuteronomy 32, 35, God says, vengeance is mine. And then Paul quotes rather famously that passage in Romans 12, 19. He urges, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. The, the King James is, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And then he, of course, follows that up uh, in, in Romans 12 by quoting Proverbs 25, 21 that we just read. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. So Paul definitely got it. He was putting it together. But <laughs> it wasn't always that, that wasn't always the case for Paul, was it? Because uh, even though Paul would have grown up studying Old Testament scriptures, he would have... Uh, you know, including Proverbs and Leviticus, Deuteronomy, his whole life. It really wasn't until he encountered Christ that he understood fully what this meant. I, I think that's a fairly safe assumption, uh, given that before his, his conversion, his primary mission 
uh, was just to slaughter every Christian he could, he could find. At some point after his conversion, I think Paul must have just been hit with this, this truth of the nature of God's kingdom, of this kingdom principle that, that Jesus preached so much about. Jesus said not to only love your neighbor and your community members, but also to love your enemy, and to pray for and do good for those who hate you and persecute you. That's in Matthew 5.44. You can find that among other places. And that was, that was, it was and is a really radical teaching. I mean, it's hard enough sometimes to love each other even in our own families and in tight-knit communities. And it tends to become less and less intuitive to be loving and forgiving and to trust God the further you extend that circle outward. And yet, even though it's counterintuitive sometimes, it was so fundamental to what Christ taught. And you can see it throughout the Gospels, throughout Paul's letters. And out of those, we do have some, some memorable snippets uh, that we like to quote, like the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have done unto you. Or one-liners like, turn the other cheek, which is actually a part of, it's in Matthew 5, 38 through 48. And he says other things similar to that. And we can say things like that rather flippantly sometimes. But really, if you look at Matthew 5, 38 through 48, it's a challenging passage. Jesus was not asking for something easy. It's a very counterintuitive, countercultural mindset to have. And yet Jesus certainly practiced what he, he preached, didn't he? he? He lived this out to the fullest when he, when he subjected himself to be crucified at the hands of his enemies. And while when hanging on the cross, an innocent man, beaten and torn to shreds for our sins, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And meanwhile, none of us here today can claim to be innocent except through the blood of Christ. And that really should give us all the more reason to extend that love that he showed us, that forgiveness, that mercy to our, fr our families, our friends, our neighbors, and even to our enemies. Of course, I say our enemies, and not all of us necessarily have enemies that are overt as the ones that, that David had or that Jesus had. But this, this principle applies just as much to more subtle situations. So whether it's people at work or in our, or in our families or neighborhoods or at school or in, in our churches, wherever it is, we need to assess ourselves and our attitudes towards other people in our lives and just try to identify if we are harboring any bitterness or resentment towards people in our lives. So I guess today is another call, like last week, for just some inner reflection, searching your heart for, for jealousy or hatred or really any other toxic attitude towards others that doesn't come from a place of, of love. And just replacing that with trust in God and patience for him to accomplish his plan for you, and hope in knowing that he is a good and just God. And of course, that doesn't really mean that 
every conflict that in every relationship that we have will necessarily resolve nicely. And we see David and Saul were never really reconciled. And yet David on his end, what he had control over, his responsibility was for his own attitude. And he maintained an attitude of of love, humility, and trust that God would, would judge Saul fairly. And if we do practice that mindset and that heart condition, then we can certainly pray that God would use that to bring others into reconciliation with, with each other and, even more importantly, with, with God. So let's commit to practicing this, this really a difficult principle. And not just in a, a sing-songy, it kind of sounds nice kind of way, but in a really a deep and real internalized conviction to love because God first loved us and to trust in God's ability and His willingness to take care of us, even, even if that involves being uncomfortable. And then patience for God to, to really see His work through in His timing. Let's pray.